Good evening and welcome back. I hope this episode finds you well. It's almost St. Patrick's Day and we're getting ready to celebrate all that it is to be Irish. From our culture to our history. It's a time when many Irish people reflect on what it is to be from this country. And often whether it means anything at all. I take the view that it does indeed mean something and that we have been blessed with a rich culture and a beautiful country from which to draw inspiration from. And that though our history is often marked with tragedy, it is also enriched with heroism and splendour. I may stand accused of being misty-eyed about these things, but in a world of often unspeakable cruelty, and cynicism. It does the soul no harm at all to remember how fortunate we are to be from this pretty little island. And it is with this sense of wonder about Ireland that we approach tonight's story. Set in one of the most beautiful vistas in Western Europe, the ancient monastic settlement of Glendalough is nestled in a vale surrounded by the mountains of County Wicklow. It is a stunning place to visit, and if you haven't already done so, then I would advise you to take the trip sometime. The character at the centre of our story understands its significance too. So, let's join her now in that beautiful valley in Glendalough. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Glendalough. Mary was not predisposed to walk anywhere without a direct reason and would hesitate when asked to accompany someone for the purpose of a simple stroll. This wasn't an aversion to walking itself, but a firmly held belief that every journey should have a defined end and a set reason for arriving there. And this was especially true 10 years into her retirement, when energy was becoming a more precious commodity. There were notable exceptions to these beliefs, however, one of which was an aimless ramble through the ruined churches and graveyards of Glendalough. For here, she could do little but marvel at the monastic city despite herself. The stony remains of sacred buildings stood eternal and firm. Gravestones lay bleached in the rays of a midday sun, and a high round tower tapered to a pinnacle which sliced through a boundless blue sky. It was a thing to be witnessed on a fine day, Mary mused as she cast her eyes upward to a narrow window at the summit of the tower. The mournful requiem bells had long fallen silent about the valley, but the building to house them had weathered a millennium and seemed none the worse for it. Surrounded on all sides by rolling slopes and peaks of the Wicklow Mountains, the monastery had surely remained hidden for years from the swords and envious eyes of the Vikings 
and our Norse allies. Bastards, Mary raged internally, feeling a rush of Catholicism surge through her flushed cheeks. They could leave nothing alone until it was utterly crushed beneath their ignorant feet. What the poor monks must have suffered. Making her way along a pathway to the upper lake, which overlooked the ruins, she found her eyes continually drawn back to the solemn graveyard of Ireland's golden age. Beneath, on the surface of the valley, the final stand of the island of saints and scholars lay scattered in mossy rocks and slanted walls. What holy men and treasures must they once have hidden? Alas, sure only God himself would have the answers to those questions now. It was time to sit upon a familiar flat rock by the edge of the water to enjoy a flask of tea and a cheese sandwich. The midday sun had momentarily hidden its face behind the tufts of a passing cloud and a dark serenity fell softly upon the valley. Beneath the shadow, the calm surface of the water lapped gently against a rocky shoreline and a gentle breeze tussled the wild grasses about its edges. Frank would have loved it, of course. Then he would have gotten contrary about the breeze getting into his ear. Mary pictured her husband sitting beside her on the same rock as he had done so many times before, his blue eyes pensive and locked upon the lake, the white wisps of his remaining hair blown forward to his furrowed brow and his jaw in a perpetual state of motion in the manner of a cow chewing the cud. No words would be spoken, but with every glance, Mary would gauge the speed of his rotating jaw in anticipation of his next complaint or ailment. It was never far away. Somewhere above the movements of his mouth, Discontents were being brewed in bubbling vats and prepared for release. The tea would be cold. He was still hungry, or the sun's reflection on the lake was hurting his eyes. They would move along then, before his back got sore from sitting, and he would insist on taking the nine-kilometre walking trail around the lake, even though she knew it was much too long for either of them. Somewhere before the halfway point, they would stop for a rest, where he would cough and wheeze until spittle peppered his chin. This spectacle would continue for most of ten minutes, before she would be informed that he needed to use the bathroom. They both knew this was code for telling her to keep a lookout, while he steadied himself and pissed against a tree. Invariably, Someone would pass by in these moments, and often with a child. Mary sighed at the memory and sipped the last dregs of her tea before pouring the remnants onto the grass. The day had fallen as still as the surface of the lake, and peace reigned once more in the grasslands of the valley. She would take her time ambling along the three-kilometre trail today and stopped by a bench for a read of her magazine.
The forecast was good, and with the recent spell of warm weather, she could find plenty of wild flowers to pick and bring home to her vase in her kitchen. Her home had also become a place of serenity over the past year, and she now listened to her favourite show on Radio 1 every morning as she prepared breakfast. The smell of brewing tea and buttery toast filled her nose with joy, and cooking only for oneself was never a chore. She had gotten painters in to redecorate the kitchen and living room, and had insisted on brighter colours despite the protests of her two daughters. It was too much change too fast, they said, but they didn't have to live there. They both had their modern homes, bright and airy, and in Mary's opinion, had never known true hardship. Not that she wanted it for them. The family had never been well off during the decades that passed under that roof. They had been approved for the house by the council when Mary was pregnant with Amy, and the three bedrooms should have given her sister Rachel a room of her own too when she came along. But Frank had wanted a study for his books and musings, so the girls needed to share. A study. Mary said the word aloud now by the lake. Notions. It was never an issue until their daughters became teenagers. The daily dramas upstairs soon became unbearable, and Mary pleaded with Frank to convert the study into another bedroom. It's only for a few years, she would say. Amy will be going to college then. All the more reason to keep the study, he would blithely return. When both of the girls finally moved out, the house officially had a guest room for the first time, and Mary felt herself coming up in the world. Frank made a concerted effort to remodel it, throwing out the two single beds and replacing them with a double. Mary had it wallpapered, and it quickly became the pride of the house. She would deliberately invite guests around, not so they could sleep there, but to bring them upstairs so they could look at it. One sticky night in August, as she awoke from a troubled dream about her daughters, Mary lay crooked and anxious by her husband's side. He had stolen the quilt and wrapped it under his back in sleep, and his snores were more intrusive than usual. Sitting upright against the headrest, she scanned the contents of her life. Dark, but for the digital numbers on Frank's alarm clock, an ungodly hour. And so, bringing her feet down upon the soft fibres of the carpet, she walked lightly into the guest room next door and slid under the fresh comfort of the new bedclothes. It was peaceful. It was her own place in the world and she slept soundly. Little by little, her nightly migrations became more frequent as the months of that year slipped by, and Frank offered no signs of protest. She would regularly go there during the day to read or lie on the bed and listen to the radio. Sometimes she could hear Frank shuffling about downstairs, banging a press door and mumbling about one thing or another. 
but it was easy to turn up the music until the sounds he made were gone. Now he was gone forever. Mary shifted her weight and watched a robin, solitary as always, land casually on the grassy verge of the lake. He seemed to want something of her, as though he wished to speak to her of all the troubles of the world. This beautiful orb they shared. In time, she allowed her eyes to follow the trail of her hand along the flat rock she was sitting on to the space her husband once occupied. His form came easily to mind as a perched heron silently watching over the lake. Come on, Frankie, let's do the walk before the weather changes, she'd insist. Tired now, she watched his old head turn to look at her. Did you pack the salad sandwiches for me? I did, love. All right, so, I suppose we came this far. Never let it be said that I don't bring you on romantic excursions. Oh, God help us. Before they began their hike up to the lake, Frank would have insisted they do their customary inspection of the monastic ruins, as if something were likely to have changed between one trip and another. She was always fearful that he would lose his footing around the uneven ground of the monastery, so she would hold his hand tightly while he scuttled around from one building to the next. He would point with childlike enthusiasm to the various remains of walls and tell her the latest piece of information he had learned from reading about them. She would agree that it was all very interesting. And you wonder what I do be doing in my study, he'd quip, with a wry smile he reserved for special occasions when he tried to catch her out. Oh, sure, how would I ever find my way around without my personal tour guide, she'd return. It's not about finding your way around. It's about noticing the things you see. She felt his hand warm in her own and squeezed his fingers until he looked back at her. I've always done that, she whispered. He held her gaze and smiled. I know that too. Now, placing her palm on the rock where Frank once sat, Mary traced her finger round a hollow and imagined her husband's hand. He'd flinch at first, maybe even tell her to stop being silly. Then he would turn his palm upright and close his fingers round her own. Ah, Frankie, she would say. The gentle breeze had given way to a blustery northern wind, and the lake rippled beneath a quickly moving cloud. Mary wiped her eyes and gazed into the many reflections on the surface, as her husband once did. The worlds above and below seemed closer than ever. On the verge, two brambles locked their thorns around each other in mortal unison. Their combined weight pulling them both down to the soft embrace of the water.